follow the data. You must follow the data, even when the answer's ugly. Welcome to Start Disrupting, where I talk with game changers in technology. I'm your host, Brett Malone. Today on the show, we're talking about creating partnerships between big companies and small companies. What's it take not to get ahead of the data? How do you build the relationships effectively? And how do you navigate the complexities of different timelines? My special guest, Kenna Andrus, joins us. She's got experience from both sides of the table, working both at Pfizer and in the big company side, as well as representing many small companies wanting to create those partnerships. You're not going to want to miss this, the art of biotech partnering coming up. Kenna, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. We really appreciate everything you do and everything you're doing to help the CRC grow. And certainly from your vantage point and your perspective there in San Diego and, and with your background in, in so many great companies in the life sciences sector. So tell our listeners just real quickly a little bit about yourself. Hi, Brett. Thanks for um, inviting me. I'll start with saying that I knew from a, an early age that I wanted to be at the cutting edge of medicine. What I didn't know was how big that edge was. And I have been in drug development and medical device development for about 30 years now. And it would take a long time to uh, describe that plan of how I got there. And mostly because there wasn't a plan. It was a journey and it was my career evolving as science and technology evolved. And I, I've learned more every year I say, that was the best year ever. And every year I look back and say, well, I learned more last year than I did before. And in the last decade, as I compare it to the rest of my career, it's even more true. And I think part of that's the explosion of technology and the advances that we have made in science to advance medicine and medical devices. Isn't that the best kind of career? I mean, honestly, you know, just to kind of go from experience to experience in this journey, you know, I'm, I'm taking a rabbit trail right off the bat, but people think that their careers have to be mapped out so perfectly. And, you know, you look back on it and the best career is one that sort of journeys around and finds exciting opportunities. I mean, that's just a new world order, isn't it? It is a new world order. And it means that you have to have what I call the FIO approach. Oh, okay, good. That's the figure it out. Figure, FIO, figure it out. Okay, we got the new title for our podcast. I love it. <laughs> figure it, FIO. Okay, that's what you've been doing your entire career, sort of jumping into things and, you know, having this general wiring of not being afraid to learn new things and having some confidence that you can jump in and figure it out, right? That's right. And, and that's how I advise clients. And, you know, one of the things about me is I, I worked in corporate pharma, corporate America for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then I went independent. As, as you know, I started a, an advisory company. And one of the most fun things about that is sharing what you just said earlier is we don't have to have it all mapped out, but right. we do have to figure it out. Everyone's sort of a free agent now. And, you know, even big companies are looking for those special purpose, free agent kind of players who can come in and, and make a change, right? Make a change. Think outside the box. You know, we've heard that over and over and, and just thinking through it, sometimes with the end in mind, sometimes we don't know what the end is. Yeah. You know, so many of our startup companies think that so much of this is wired. And, and so I want to get into the topic a little bit. We see these big companies are hungry for new ways of thinking and new technologies and I mean, to be honest, and, and some of these big companies will never be honest 
and, and admit this, but a lot of them have limited capabilities in R&D and, you know, they, they have a hard time with innovation. So they, they need to partner and find companies who are comfortable being creative and innovative. You coming in as an outsider, as a free agent, being able to figure it out. A lot of times the big corporate structure has a hard time innovating to figure it out and and they look outside for that innovation. Is that a fair statement? It's a fair statement. And what I can add to that is a lot of new co's have what they think is the best new idea. And it might be true and it might not. And having an idea that's novel and having it first are two important things. First isn't always the most important, but it helps. And the other piece of that is having that big idea isn't enough. I know a lot of companies that had fantastic, great ideas. Sometimes it was even first, but if you can't execute, it's, it's never going to be more than a small conversation. And being able to execute requires sometimes that you partner or that you've got really good advisors because you can't do it alone. Yeah. And, and that's, what a lot of people think that if you have a great idea, you can just approach a big company like a Pfizer and, and all will be, you know, magical. And, and there's a long <laughs> road to aligning all of these expectations. So let's un- unpack this for the listeners. You know, like this is sort of the topic that we're, we're trying to take on today with this podcast. It's a little bit about setting the expectations and getting perspectives from all the different dynamics in the, in the marketplace, right? And frankly, the lessons that we talk about today, I will guarantee you, and, and Ken and I have not shared notes, but I will guarantee a lot of these lessons will transcend, you know, any, any kind of technology. It's not just biotech. It's, it's anything where you've got something innovative and you're approaching a much bigger established corporation. Ken, let me, let me ask you, because you've been on both sides of this, you've been approached in, in some of your previous positions with, with technologies and companies who have some quote unquote innovation. Let's help our listeners think about, you know, what are the expectations? You know, what are the common things that kind of go wrong and where are the misalignments? And let's start with that. Yeah, I think one of those items is time and the expectation of how long things take. When you try to map timelines to certain milestones and finances to achieve those milestones, sometimes we have an immediate misalignment. (laughs) So I think one of the early things is, you know, try to understand that and put themselves in each other's shoes. Investors want companies to operate as lean and mean as they can. They want a big return on investment. Well, you know, and when you think about the timeline and the pressures of living one financing round to another, especially in this industry, money buys you data. And, you know, you're always scrambling to raise more money to buy more data. And a lot of times you, you're caught kind of in this gap where you, you have just enough data and you haven't quite been able to raise the next round. And you get caught in a little bit of this desperation, if you will, where now the timeline is staring you in the face, right? I mean, and yeah. you're looking down the barrel of running out of money. You have what you think is sufficient data, but the big company has all the time in the world to just wait it out. And, and that's where the expectations really start to get tight. Let's talk about the data for a second, because one of the things that I see a lot is small companies already have a vision of what the data should be. As a scientist, you know that 
you can't get in love with your vision of the data. Yeah. The results and the data must, must stand alone and speak. New companies sometimes aren't ready for is, what if the data doesn't support the vision? Mm -hmm. Do they have a pivot plan? Yeah, so there's a plan, there's some data that's been collected, it may prove something, but it's okay, and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I mean, it, it's also okay for a company to say, well, we've collected this data, we thought we were headed here, but this is actually what we're seeing, and therefore it, it indicates that maybe we can go in this direction, and maybe a different indication, or a different formulation, or, you know, what have you. Follow the data. You must follow the data, even when the answer is ugly. Yeah. And, you know, I had firsthand experience, you know, people who are coaching me never get ahead of the data, you know, so you never want to be out sort of selling your vision if your data can't support it. Is there a misalignment or is there, are there differences in expectations around what we would consider proof? And, and by that, I mean, small startup company has data and they believe it's proving something, but, you know, a bigger company has much more rigorous standards, or maybe a different idea of what proof looks like. Help us unpack a little bit of that, because I see a lot of people spend a lot of time and energy either collecting the wrong data or believing their data is proof of something that's not quite yet sufficient. Yeah, I think there, there can be a misalignment there, and it can be on a couple levels. One is what the small company believes is sufficient the N of two, maybe, or the N of one <laughs> right. is sometimes enough to get everybody excited. And, you know, or that we saw one complete response. Oh, the other 11 died, but that one complete response <laughs> gives hope. Yeah. Right? Now, a toxicologist would look at that and take away a very different conclusion. Yeah. But that's what I'm getting at. It's in the eyes of what are you hoping to see? But did your data really show you that? Well, that one CR is not what you should be paying attention to. It was the 11 that checked out. <laughs> right. And that's an extreme example just to illustrate our point. But I think the other misalignment is, is there sufficient proof already known? Or is that still the body of evidence that we're trying to build? And I think, you know, so many people think that they need this complete and thorough set at the same time. They, they just really need to understand what data is going to be most meaningful and go off and collect that and be very efficient with your capital, be very thrifty and, and collect the right kind of data. And, and one of the things that I learned early in my career, which it seems opposite as you approach things scientifically, is where's the killer experiment to kill the program? Sounds kind of counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. It's like, wait, we all wrote this down in our goals that we were going to be, we're going to deliver this candidate. And now you're telling me what's the experiment to do to kill it. Mm -hmm. But we flip that around. That's how you de-risk the program. And that's another, I think, theme that smaller companies miss. They get so focused on one side of this, which is what's, you know, the, the next positive piece of data. How are we de-risking it for mm -hmm the unexpected. That's a and really good insight, you know, because people think they just want to keep showing the positive mechanism, but you know, they're, they're kind of afraid to do that test. That sounds like FDA type thinking, right? How could this possibly 
screw itself up. And that's the data we want to see. Like that sounds to me like an FDA meeting. <laughs> that's an FDA meeting. But if I were your investor, I'm going to say, well, you know what? I would rather this be a half a million dollar failure than a $5 million failure. So think of it that way. The earlier you de-risk it should be fewer funds versus if I keep de-risking along the way, then every dollar I put in has a better shot of being successful. You know, you're exactly right. It's counterintuitive for the startup because they just want sort of the glory data. And let's be honest. I mean, nobody wants to be in possession of data that kills their program. <laughs> so, you know, as you think about de-risking, that's a hard ask. Mm -hmm. It is. But when you think about it, I guess in, in my experience, I have been fortunate to work in programs where our end goal in mind was medicine for a patient. So yeah. when I put that hat on and say, how do I make sure that everything I'm doing is going to be good for this patient? I certainly don't want anything getting there that's not. And that sounds ridiculously simple. And it, and it does have an FDA component. And we have lots of barriers there to make sure things that aren't safe don't reach patients. But as an early company, thinking about if, if it's a drug, if it's a device, how are you going to guarantee to the best of your ability that it's going to do no harm and do what you built it to do? That's perfect. That's where this pivot really comes into because you might be in possession of something that, you know, might not take you down one road, but if you have the vision and are able to pivot, you still might get into clinic. That's where the bigger company is there to help. So we started out with the, <laughs> what goes wrong? Let, let's pivot ourselves. Let's talk about, you know, what are big companies looking for? And I mean, what would an early stage company be surprised by in terms of what a bigger company is either looking for or their appetite for these kind of innovations? And frankly, maybe a little bit of their tolerance and patience. You know, a lot of this comes down to relationship and chemistry. And there are really really good, solid people in these big companies that want this innovation to happen. It's all down to the relationship of the person in these programs who become your champion. You know, what would early stage companies be surprised by and, and what can they expect as they, you know, start to open these dialogues and relationships? I'll have to say I have some insight on that having been an advisor to small companies who then enter partnerships or relationships with the larger company. And having come from that environment puts me in a place where I, I understand both sides. And one of the things that I've noticed surprises the small company is the expectation from the large company of how fast things should move for them, the small company. That surprises them. At the same time, they get nervous that they're not moving fast enough. And sometimes that causes anxiety that comes from the expectation that things need to go fast. So they trade off sort of speed for thoughtfulness. Well, and that's just a general life lesson. I mean, come on. So the big company puts a lot of pressure on the small company to move fast, which you would expect. But at the same time, there's a certain yin and yang there, right? I mean, it's, it's okay for the small company to say, look, this is what we have the resource for. Right. And, and I don't want to make the, the big company sound like, like the big bad wolf here. 
They're absolutely not, but they have a, a different level of experience. And I think what they do is they push. Sometimes a small company is, you know, isn't ready for that push. The relationship that gets built there always comes down to a few individuals that are good leaders in those teams. This is something else for small companies to think about. Who are your good leaders, good communicators? Because these are the people that are going to be interfacing with big pharma to try to understand what pharma is saying. And, and that's the other thing we, I want to take a step back on is there are really two different languages going on in the small company and the big company. And having this translation is critical on the expectations that we're talking about. Yeah, a small company may feel like they just don't have the alignment with what either maybe the industry standard or the internal corporate lingo, so to speak, right? The internal corporate lingo. And so if the C-level is speaking from the small company and the big company, that's great. And they've worked out the terms of the deal and all of that. But where rubber's hitting the road at other levels of the company, they haven't had the privilege of how that communication went. And there's things lost between the C-level communication and down. Yeah. You know, leadership and communication. <laughs> at the end of the day, this is just what this is about. And having patience, having a good idea. You know, I think, like you said, this big companies need this innovation. And a lot of times, small companies, early stage companies, they see the big company as the way forward. In some cases, that's true. In some cases, you know, they weigh the cost of doing that and raise a little more money and just continue to go it alone. You know, that's the game that's played, at least in this industry and, and in almost any industry, really. This concept of being able to partner and get to market through a, a bigger partner. And, and, you know, so many people think that's the exit and it's maybe, but it's just one of many possible exits. In some cases, you may find that you just need to wait a little bit longer. Yeah, I, th I think that's right, that a lot of new companies think the exit is to be acquired. Yeah. How do these small companies think about finding the right inroads? You know, at the end of the day, what have you found to be most effective at just sort of getting in the door, you know, getting a little bit of initial chemistry and traction going just to have a shot? Well, I think the first one there is the know your audience. You know, don't don't go after a big portfolio, you know, held by uh, VCs that were, you don't have a relationship there or a foot in the door. And I know that might sound obvious, but I've seen it happen and they think, no, because what we have is so amazing. They're going to welcome us. And it's like, yeah, probably not. I think it's important to have personal introduction when possible. Because what that does already is there's just a different level of engagement that happens. There's almost this beginning of, of trust because you got introduced, which means you must be known. That level of trust, I think, starts the genuine conversation. And it will also, I think, get to a genuine answer sooner rather than later of this might fit for us. Let's take you to the next step versus you know, thanks. It was great meeting you, but this isn't going to align with our portfolio. Yeah. Some of the best partnering meetings I ever had were the ones that 
you know, we had a, a, a solid overview. It was clear that the company understood what we were doing, but it was also clear that, hey, you know, they were very upfront and forward about saying, well, it's, it's exciting. Here's what I would do, but this doesn't fit our portfolio. And, you know, we knew pretty quickly that it wasn't a fit and, and no one wasted any time. You know, the good ones know how to do that. And, you know, the ones that tend to string you along are the ones that, you know, tend to get, get in trouble with the small company because they can't say no effectively. Right. And, and, the, and a good outcome on the ones who, who can say no effectively is asking for their recommendation. Of, they know everybody in the space, right? Right. And if you're short on an intro, ask for it. That's a great, great point. You know, I think people need to be out there really just building relationship. And it takes years sometimes to just build the relationship. And you never know when it's going to come in handy. And so as you engage as a young professional, as a young investigator, if you're developing your company, you know, don't, don't be afraid to build relationships with some of the, the people in these companies and just to get on the radar without a hard ask. My experience is that's appreciated by a lot of these folks that are out there looking and shopping. Yeah, agreed. What are some things, Kenna, that you're thinking about that, that we can also sprinkle into this? I think one of the things is the lens for how the new company is thinking about their competitors. That's certainly something that their big pharma partners are monitoring. We want them to focus on what they're trying to deliver. But I think before they, let's say before they're in the partnership, one of the things that will be expected is that they understand how they're gonna differentiate their big idea or their asset from the competition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some of my challenges, you know, as, I've, as I used to do this, some of the challenges I found was just getting a company interested in an indication. You know, a lot of times, the, the small company approaching the big company, you know, they may be working in an indication where there's just been a lot of failures for the big company. And that's an uphill battle. That's a really tough road. You're going to have to find somebody that can get passionate about an indication that is typically looks tough for some of these big companies and they just economically don't want to take a risk on it. I'm going to push back on that just a little bit. Let, okay, me, tell you, let me tell you why. It's true. The, the big company chooses their indications from the commercial aspect, right? They want to go after the bigger markets. However, the reason that they're talking to the smaller companies is because they need the innovation. They need the new targets. They, they need something besides the big indications. So this is where, even though themselves they're not going after the smaller indications or indications where there've been just abject failures, mm -hmm. they'll have more tolerance for that in a small company, provided, you know, that the plan, again, have, makes some sense. Coming over to the small company where they'll come with, you know what, yeah, we've got something and we're going into late stage pancreatic cancer. Right. What is the immediate reaction from a big company? because we know how difficult that is. And there's a long list of failures for that. Right. The small companies coming with this new energy, they believe in their product and they don't know what they don't know yet. This does become a place where they can take some good guidance from big pharma around, look, this is what it's gonna take to get an FDA approval. 
Mm -hmm. How are you stacking up in there? What are the odds really when you look at what it's going to take? And then it helps level set the playing field right there. That's such a great example because, you know, I think if you've been in this game, you've all sort of lived the, that exact scenario. And, you know, if you're, if you're on the small company side, it really forces you to test your conviction. And it's like, all right, are you that good that you can survive through that really difficult indication? Or, you know, do you look at all the cards and, and pivot towards something else? And that's where it's always interesting to, to test the conviction of, of the investigators and the small companies and, and, and the data that they have. Right. And, and the other thing to layer into this is the, the failure rate. Or we could talk about the success rate, depending on what kind of people are we, right? That the glass half full or glass half empty. But the, the important part is that at least in drug development, we know it's a high failure rate. Mm -hmm. 85, 90% fail. And sometimes it's not because it wasn't good science and you weren't a great team and you didn't have a great group of investors. That's just how it goes in drug development. And so when you're a small company, you have to sort of face that at the beginning. And so having to think this all the way through to a product launch is pretty daunting. You know, it's interesting. That's where the big companies have resources that can help the small companies. And, you know, the small company approaching saying, look, you have this, this history, you know, you have this legacy, you've developed so much. We believe we're onto something, but we also, you have to honor a little bit of that, that history. Hey, so kind of what are the trends going on? Obviously, COVID has put the kibosh on things like JP Morgan and all these face-to-face -face and all these speed dating things we used to do. So what's it look like in the world right now? How can companies expect to engage in more of a virtual world? And, and what's that mean? What, what are you seeing in terms of trends? Give us an update on what you're seeing out there. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of what's called Zoom fatigue in, in the interim. I think people are saying, okay, we just got to you know, buckle down and continue this way. I don't think we'll ever go back to the way it was. I mean, it's just going to have to be some, you know, new form that's a little more efficient, a little less fatiguing, and, you know, maybe more effective. I don't know. I like that thinking a lot. I, I'm absolutely with you that this may be a way that people think about how to do this better. Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of these companies, the bigger companies actually have an advantage now because, they have the ability to sort of monitor more things through social media, more, you know, just LinkedIn connections and some of these virtual Zoom meetups or happy hours. So, you know, I'm going to go on a limb and give some advice on this podcast. You know, staying involved in those passion areas will get you noticed. And I think just conversations with folks in your community leads to things sometimes that are unexpected, but, you know, incredibly exciting. And a great to have you on the show. It's always a lot of fun. Hope all is well and you're enjoying sunny San Diego. And thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. It's great talking to you, Brett. Appreciate the invitation. And that's it for this episode. Subscribe to Start Disrupting wherever you get your podcasts. We have a new disruptor on our show every two weeks and you're not going to want to miss it. Check out vtcrc.com for the latest on our research park and over 225 companies that call us home. Until next time, always change the game.